Major developments in two trials that could shake this nation. The lead starts right now. The man who shot unarmed black jogger Ahmaud Arbery on the defensive as prosecutors try to punch holes in his story. The stunning step-by-step account of the final moments of Arbery's life. And a critical day for the president's $1.7 trillion spending plan as we find out whether it'll pay for itself like the White House claims. And she was thrown in prison for reporting on the early days of COVID in China. The new push to free her as her health now fails. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with our national lead and a pair of emotionally charged trials attracting nationwide attention. In just a moment, we're going to get to the latest developments as a jury deliberates the fate of Kyle Rittenhouse, a teenager facing homicide charges and the killings of two men during last year's Black Lives Matter demonstrations in Kenosha, Wisconsin. But let's start in Georgia, where three white men face murder charges and the death of an unarmed black jogger named Ahmad Arbery. This afternoon, a group of pastors led a march in support of Arbery's family and demanded justice. And earlier today, one of the defendants faced a tough cross-examination from prosecutors. As CNN's Martin Savage reports, it focused on the man's claims he chased Arbery in a pickup truck, struggled with him, then shot and killed him in self-defense. Drew down on him. Travis McMichael taking the stand in his own defense for a second day in the trial for the killing of Ahmad Arbery. Lead prosecutor Linda Donikowski continuing to go after him during cross-examination. You also could have stepped around the back of the truck and followed him in the path that way. Is that right? Yes, but then he would have had an open, unrestricted run around the truck and into my open door, into my pickup truck, and put so, it to the truck. So you're telling this jury that a man who has spent five minutes running away from you, you're now thinking is somehow going to want to continue to engage with you, someone with a shotgun, and your father, a man who's just said, stop or I'll blow your head off, by trying to get in their truck? That's what it shows, yes ma'am. Also pressuring him on his self-defense claim. And you were right there and you just pulled that trigger immediately. No, I was struck and he was, we were face to face and being struck and that's when I, when I shot. He started striking, he was on me, he had a shirt or you know something to that point and I had the gun. And I was too close to draw on him. He's striking you, you've got the gun up in this Thing and you can't draw down on him and it's just it's a struggle and he's on you and you're going back and forth in front of the truck is that what you're saying yes and the prosecutor calling out his and his father's alleged intent to make a citizen's arrest during your statement to the police did you say that you and your father were trying to arrest mr arbery did you uh no ma'am outside the courtroom pastors al sharpton jesse jackson jamal bride martin luther king iii and attorneys Ben Crump and Lee Merritt joining the Arbery family for a prayer vigil that had been organized by the Reverend Al Sharpton. Also today, Kevin Goff, attorney for William Roddy Bryan Jr., saying his client will not testify in his own defense. Mr. Bryan has no intention of testifying at the trial of this case. If the state wants the testimony of Mr. Bryan, they can dismiss the indictment in this case against him with prejudice as to all counts. Then there'd be something to talk about. And for a third time, he was denied when calling the Reverends Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson to be kept out of the courtroom. Judge Wamsley once again 
denying the motion. And later on, Goff objecting to this question from the state. Do you believe that someone stealing is deserving of death penalty, Mr. Coffey? Goff calling for a mistrial. Given the, the, all the time that we've put into this trial. It was denied, but Judge Wamsley admonished the prosecutor and instructed the jury to disregard the question. And now we're hearing from inside the courtroom that the defense teams for Gregory and Travis McMichael are resting. But, as you know, this is a complicated case with three defense teams. There is still the representative for William Roddy, Brian Jr., that's Kevin Goff, to declare what exactly he will do or if he intends to call any witnesses. We're waiting to hear. Pamela. All right, Martin Savage, thank you. And now let's go to Kenosha, Wisconsin. That is where jurors are nearing the end of a third full day of deliberations in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. CNN's Sarah Seidner is live at the courthouse. So, Sarah, as we await the jury's verdict, we're also expecting a big decision from the judge on whether or not to declare a mistrial. Where does that stand? That's right. There are actually two mistrial motions that uh, the defense says that they are going to enter. They've already entered one for prosecutorial overreach. And the second one is about this drone video that uh, they say was not given to them in the full resolution that they deserve to have it in. Um, so far, we have not heard from the judge uh, as to how he is going to rule on those two requests for mistrial. Let's look at this video. This is specific video that the jury has asked to see. And this is also the video that the mistrial uh, they're talking about uh, using uh, to, to, to call for a mistrial. What you see in this video, and we have it fast motion there for you, we also have it a slow motion for you. And if you look in the middle of your screen, you will see Kyle Rittenhouse turn and shoot at Joseph Rosenbaum. Uh, that was the first person that he shot and killed that night. Now, earlier, you see him lift the weapon to and towards Rosenbaum as Rosenbaum is coming after him. And the question here is whether or not that is considered a provocation, something that you can't do if you're going to claim self-defense. Uh, and so as we look at this video, the jury has asked to see this video, and they did go over it yesterday. Uh, that video, though, is... Uh, in an argument with the defense, the defense saying, look, we got this video, but it was a low resolution version. The prosecution had a high resolution version that they did not hand over in a timely manner, although the prosecution said, look, we handed over what we thought was the high resolution version to you. There have been some mistakes, of course, in this case. The judge uh, very annoyed about it, but saying I'm going to let it in for now. And he says if everything is okay with this video and it is proper and correct, it's fine. But if it isn't, if there is something different about this video, then the judge says that is going to be a huge problem. All yeah. right, Sarah Seidner in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Thank you. Let's bring in criminal defense attorney Julie Rendleman and former prosecutor Charles Coleman Jr., who was also a civil rights attorney. And I just want to start with this breaking news just coming in out of Georgia. All three defense attorneys rested their cases with only one of the defendants taking the stand on that. Um, what do you think about this, Charles? Well, I think that this is a calculated move by the defense. Uh, ultimately, what they're trying to do is force the prosecution to prove its case. I think when it came down to the cross-examination that we saw today of Travis McMichael, the prosecution did a really, really good job in terms of shifting the tone. Yesterday, when we saw Travis McMichael testify, his tone was extremely casual and conversational. In fact, if you weren't paying attention to 
what was actually going on, you would have no way of actually realizing that he was on trial for murder. And I think that after the prosecution had this opportunity to cross-examine uh, Mr. Michael today and did so very effectively in terms of really making the jury understand that a lot of what Mr. McMichael was assessing and, alleg and alleging on the stand simply didn't make sense. I think the rest of the defense figured, you know what? It may not be best for our clients to testify. Let's go with what we have and assume that the prosecution may not be able to prove his burden beyond a reasonable doubt. And so while it does not surprise me entirely, it is going to be up to this prosecution now to truly sell its case to the jury on summation. And Julie, an alleged citizen's arrest is really at the crux of this trial. But Travis McMichael testifying today that he never told police or Arbery that this was a citizen's arrest. How much of a problem is that for the defense? Yeah, this is something the prosecution has focused on. You know, the argument is, is why didn't he announce it? Why didn't he say something? Why didn't he say something to the police when they got there? And and it, he, here's the thing. It's not totally unusual that someone doesn't necessarily announce their intentions, but intentions can be assumed by some of your actions. I think the bigger issue that comes down to it is the definition of citizen's arrest. And it doesn't seem, based on the evidence, that Travis McMichael had the necessary information to even engage in, quote unquote, a citizen's arrest. And I think the prosecution did an absolutely beautiful job, just like Charles was talking about, of basically leading him, similar to what Travis McMichael's father allegedly said, which is, they boxed in Arbery like a rat. I think she did that to him today um, by basically cornering him and saying there were a million, a million options you could have taken other than getting out of that car. And instead, you chose to get out that car with that gun. And that's why we're here today. Let's take a, a listen to a little bit of that exchange. Uh, here it is. You could have easily just stepped back to your pickup truck and watched him keep going, right? I could have, yes. So you're telling this jury that a man who has spent five minutes running away from you, you're now thinking is somehow going to want to continue to engage with you, someone with a shotgun, and your father, a man who's just said, stop or I'll blow your head off, by trying to get in their truck? That's what it shows, yes ma'am. So clearly, uh, Charles, she got some key concessions there from McMichael. When you were watching that exchange, what was going through your mind? I thought it was so critically important because when Travis McMichael testified on direct, one of the things that his attorney was able to do very skillfully was to elicit answers from McMichael that made it seem like his actions were completely rational and that the actions of Ahmaud Arbery were irrational. And what the prosecutor did on her cross-examination today was that she completely reversed that. She flipped that. She made it very obvious to the jury that, in fact, it was actually Mr. McMichael whose actions did not make sense with respect to the story that they want the jury to believe when everything is laid out very clearly. This was an important cross-examination and the clip that you just played was an important series of questions because it really makes it plain for the jury that actually what Mr. McMichael was originally alleging simply did not add up. All right, I want to turn to the Rittenhouse trial now. This is the third day of jury deliberation. Still no verdict. Julie, what do you read into that, if anything? 
So, I, look, I was a prosecutor for a very long time, and, and I've learned not to read into anything. Um, you know, we always talk about what does a note mean, who's asking about the note, and we realize that, you know, sometimes it's one juror asking a question, or it's ten jurors um, asking a question, and even when they ask for, for example, the video, we don't know what part of the video they're asking about. We don't know if they're thinking about self-defense or provocation or intent. We just don't know. I will say the longer the case goes on, it does seem to kind of impact kind of people's belief. Is it possible we're going to walk away with a hung jury? Because the longer it takes, the more you start to think they're never going to agree with each other with regards to each and every one of these counts. And Charles, the fact that the jury felt the need to review this video, might that suggest they had questions about Rittenhouse and his claims for self-defense? Oh, absolutely. I think that the prosecution had some challenges during its actual case in the presentation, but did a fantastic job doing what they could with what they had on summation. And one of the things that they did during that that closing argument was that they really hammered home this theme of provocation. They really did their best between tying in the different things that they were able to get out on on Kyle Rittenhouse's cross-examination, as well as the jury instruction from the judge around provocation, enough to really make the jury question Kyle Rittenhouse's claim of self-defense. And I think that that's a big part of what you're seeing in terms of why you are watching the review this video. I think Julie's right. It's not easy to determine what exactly they're looking at. But I do think a large part of the review of this video is hinging on this narrative of uh, provocation versus victimization that we've heard from both parties. All right, Charles Coleman, Julie Rindelman, thank you both so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The House of Representatives could finally vote on the second part of President Biden's agenda today. We're going to talk to a leading progressive Democrat up next. Plus, she was jailed for showing the truth about what was going on during the early days of the COVID pandemic in China. Now her family is worried she may not survive her imprisonment. In our politics lead, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says the House could vote today on the nearly $2 trillion bill to expand the social safety net and combat climate change. But there are several moderate Democrats who are still not convinced. And any minute, a key ruling from the budget office could give us insight into whether or not this bill will pass. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, President Biden is balancing this major legislative push with the visits of two key U.S. allies. We've had a lot of meetings around President Biden on a diplomatic mission with neighbors on both borders. This is one of the easiest relationships you can have as an American president. One of the best. The U.S. president sitting down with the leaders of Mexico and Canada today for the first time in five years. Energy, COVID-19, climate change and migration, all potentially tense topics on the agenda. But there's a lot of complicating factors. We're going to talk a lot about it. Unlike the last eight North American leader summits, there was no formal press conference after this meeting. On Capitol Hill, House Democrats are trying to advance the second part of Biden's economic agenda as soon as today. It builds back better and builds back better for women, especially. Once the social spending and climate change bill passes the House, it will be in the hands of the Senate, where it needs the support of all 50 Democrats. No, no, I'm, I'm still... Still looking at everything. Absolutely. Senator Bernie Sanders railing against a provision in the current bill that would increase the cap on state and local tax deductions, amounting to a big tax cut for the wealthy. I think it's bad politics. It's bad policy. 
We've got to demand that the wealthy stop paying their fair share of taxes, not give them more tax breaks. The White House arguing it's in the name of compromise. You are comfortable with it moving forward? Again, this is not what we proposed, but this is compromise. It's in the package. This is our. Meanwhile, the president is taking on claims that the new bill will make inflation even worse. The bills do not add inflation pressures. Let me repeat that. Do not add inflation pressures. One vulnerable Democrat, Arizona Senator Mark Kelly, is calling on the White House to do more about high consumer prices. I uh, sent a letter to the White House uh, just yesterday to ask the White House to address the rising cost of gasoline across the country. And there's things that they can do. Are they not doing enough? Uh, that's why I sent the letter. Now, Pam, this House vote on the Build Back Better agenda for the president has been months in the making, but we could be just hours away from it based on what Democratic leaders have said today, that that could happen as soon as tonight. Of course, they can really leave nothing to chance here because they have such a small margin to actually get this passed, though we know some moderate members are still waiting on that score from the Congressional Budget Office The House Speaker Pelosi says could come about by 5 p.m. All right, we'll be watching for it. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Joining me now to discuss is Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan of Wisconsin. He's a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Thank you for coming on the show, Congressman. We just heard there uh, in Caitlin's report, she laid it out. Look, it's a slim margin. You can only lose three Democrats in the House to pass this bill. An aide tells CNN that Democratic Congressman Jared Golden has not decided whether to support it because of something he doesn't like in the bill. At least two others are waiting to see these estimates from the budget office. Simply put, do you have the votes? Yeah, well, Pam, thanks for having me on. Um, I think we do. I've talked to a number of those folks that were concerned that we talked to a few weeks ago. And, you know, they're very sincere. Uh, and they also acknowledge that everything they've been told as they talked to the CBO over the last several weeks is pointing to the dollars uh, being very close or exactly on in some areas to what we were saying. And I think uh, you're going to find uh, all the Democrats uh, hopefully tonight, uh, if not tomorrow, voting on this bill. Uh, you know, these are democratic values, things like child care and the family and medical leave and uh, making sure that seniors uh, are spending less on prescription drugs. And so many of the things that are in this bill are going to be easy to unite us. And while there certainly may be uh, parts of the bill that different people don't like, I think we'll all be unified in supporting this uh, agenda of Joe Biden's. And the bill includes paid family leave, but the Senate version likely won't because of Senator Joe Manchin's objections if this bill comes back to the House without paid family leave, will you support it? Yeah, I mean, we'll see what Joe Manchin uh, does. I know a lot of this bill, because of the conversations that uh, were kind of held up on the infrastructure bill, thanks to the Progressive Caucus, uh, about 95% of the bill is kind of pre-clearance. You know, people have already agreed to. It's really just a, a few remaining things. So there's a lot that's solid in this bill, a lot that's going to benefit families across the country. You know, what winds up coming back from the Senate, we'll have a conversation at that point. But, you know, where there is unity, uh, I think one of the most important provisions is this child care provision. And I think everyone's in support of that. That's a huge, uh, it's a huge lift for so many American families. They're going to literally save thousands and thousands of dollars that can go towards vacations and college funds and, and just things like clothing. Uh, it, it's going to be really a big improvement in people's lives. And I think all Democrats are unified on those matters. The reality is when it comes to paid family leave, look, the U.S. is the only industrialized country uh, without paid family leave. Manchin has said it doesn't belong in this bill. It belongs in a standalone bill. Is there a backup plan in place to pass paid family leave, maybe in a standalone bill? 
Well, it'd be good if he'd give us an answer directly if he would support that, because if we have a standalone bill, it would still need his support as well as many others. But, uh, you know, I, I think it is an important provision. You're right. We are an outlier in uh, Western countries that don't have that. I would hope that we'll keep this in the bill and we'll be able to persuade Senator Manchin and anyone else that when it comes to the Senate, uh, these are good provisions. But there's a lot here that's going to benefit American people. Don't forget, there's a tax cut for 40 million American families in this bill. And I don't think anyone's going to want to say no to that many people. I, I do want to talk about another uh, major hurdle in getting this through the Senate, because that is a reality for you. That is the fight over a Medicare expansion. Senator Bernie Sanders previously said it was non-negotiable, that a Medicare expansion must be included. But Senator Joe Manchin firmly opposes it. Are you worried that the push to get more items included in this bill could doom it? Well, I, there will be some, right? I think there is some agreement around hearing, and we're hoping that that's something the Senate will keep in there. Obviously, Senator Sanders, and I completely agree, we wanted to go to dental vision and hearing because those are all health concerns seniors have that didn't make the original package uh, for Medicare that I think is as much health care as anything else. Um, but we'll, we'll hopefully see where we get when we pass it out of the House. I think when we have a big vote out of the House, hopefully that sends a message to senators as well that there's large support to get this done. And I think more constituents will understand what's in the bill, and that's going to also help us get it done in the Senate. I want to ask you before we let you go, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy suggested if Republicans win back the House next year, they may retaliate against Democrats for removing Republicans, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from their committees. Are you worried at all about that? I don't think we'll have members that will try to kill people on videos or anything else uh, like we've seen coming from the Republicans this session. So, you know, should that happen? I think uh, they also should be censured. But, uh, you know, I think just kind of looking the other way, this is all a culmination, unfortunately, of four years of Donald Trump, you know, really brewing hate across uh, this country. And we can't let members of Congress who have to work together uh, continue this behavior. So I think we took the right action yesterday. I wish more Republicans would have stood up and showed they had a spine to do the right thing. Um, but I I think the American people understand you can't uh, put yourself in a video killing one of your colleagues. Any other job, you'd be booted. Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you for your time. Thank you. And up next, new revelations about the stunning document that purported to tie Donald Trump to Russia with some salacious allegations. In our politics lead, new revelations are sparking fresh scrutiny over a controversial document known as the Steele dossier, nearly five years after it first made headlines. Written by a retired British spy, it was full of explosive and alarming claims about then-presidential candidate Donald Trump and his campaign's alleged ties to Russia. But now we know more about who was behind it. So we decided to take another look at what ultimately became an unreliable, partisan-backed political memo that got a lot wrong. It didn't happen, and it was gotten by opponents of ours. Nearly five years since the Steele dossier first emerged publicly, federal prosecutors have laid out a clearer picture of the role well-connected Democratic insiders played in the narrative surrounding Donald Trump's ties to Russia. Two special counsel investigations, numerous congressional inquiries, and an internal review by the Justice Department have given weight to suspicions that the so-called Steele dossier was used by some Democrats as a political weapon against Trump. It was a group of opponents that got together, sick people, 
and they put that crap together. An ongoing probe by special counsel John Durham investigating the FBI's 2016 Russia probe is pulling back the curtain on some flimsy and potentially biased sourcing in the dossier that was put together by former British spy Christopher Steele. Steele has defended his work, telling ABC News in a recent tell-all interview it was raw intelligence that needed further vetting, but that his sources were solid. There wasn't one key source, I would say. There was perhaps one key collector. But Durham now says that collector was not a deep-seated Kremlin source, but instead a Russian citizen living in Virginia, Igor Danchenko. He now faces charges for lying to the FBI in interviews about where he got information that ended up in the dossier. Prosecutors say some of the information Danchenko fed to Steele came directly from longtime Democratic operative Charles Dolan, identified as PR Executive One. An attorney for Dolan acknowledged that his client is the person referenced in the Danchenko indictment. Dolan has expertise in Russian affairs and a longtime relationship with the Clintons, serving as an advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign, state chairman for both of Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns, and named to a State Department advisory post by the former president. Four things that this commission has been arguing for over the last eight years that I've been on it. Dolan, who was not accused of any crimes, is indirectly tied to multiple allegations in the dossier, according to the court filing. One claim was about infighting within the Trump campaign when Paul Manafort resigned. According to prosecutors, Dolan lied to Danchenko about where he got the information, appearing in the dossier as coming from a GOP friend who was allegedly a close associate of Trump. Durham says Dolan was indirectly linked to multiple claims in the dossier surrounding Putin and officials in the Russian government, including information about Putin firing an advisor for insisting Russia would receive no blowback for its role in meddling in the U.S. election. Durham also indirectly connects Dolan to a separate, unverified claim that a Russian diplomat in the U.S. was recalled to avoid exposure over election interference. When I leave... Our country. I'm a very high-profile person, would you say? I am extremely careful. Denchenko's indictment indirectly associates Dolan to one of the dossier's most salacious accusations, the infamous P-tape of Trump and prostitutes inside a Russian hotel. The indictment suggests that in June 2016, Danchenko used basic information learned by Dolan about Trump staying in the hotel suite. Dolan toured the same suite, but allegedly wasn't told the fantastical details which have never been proven true. And it's still not clear where those salacious details originated. Does anyone really believe that story? I'm also very much of a germaphobe, by the way. (laughs) Believe me. And in one case, prosecutors say Danchenko made up a conversation with a source, falsely claiming he was in communication with a Belarusian American businessman, Sergey Millian. Court filings say Danchenko attributed two of the dossier's most explosive claims to Millian, that there was a conspiracy of cooperation between the Trump campaign and Russian officials, and that the Russians had compromised on Donald Trump. The indictment notes Millian asserts he never met or communicated with Danchenko. Contacted by CNN, Millian said in a statement, This fraud destroyed my health, life, businesses, and turned my American dream into a nightmare. Were you working for Russia? Danchenko has pleaded not guilty to charges he lied to the FBI, and his attorney says the case is pushing a, quote, false narrative designed to humiliate and slander a renowned expert in business intelligence for political gain. 
Separately, Durham also charged attorney Michael Sussman for allegedly not revealing to the FBI he was working for the Clinton campaign when he provided the FBI with information about strange cyber activity between a Russian bank and the Trump organization. Sussman worked for the same law firm that helped arrange the dossier, Perkins Coy. The Clinton campaign paid Perkins Coy, who then hired research company Fusion GPS, who then hired Steele. Steele's firm received $168,000 to find what it could on Russia's involvement in the 2016 election and any ties to Donald Trump and his campaign. President Trump's then-Attorney General William Barr tapped Durham to lead the investigation into the FBI's Russia probe, known as Crossfire Hurricane. Some of the facts uh, that, that I've learned uh, don't hang together with the official explanations of what happened. Trump did show an openness as a candidate and businessman to receive favor and business from Russia. And there have been dozens of proven contacts revealed between Trump campaign associates and Russian nationals. Still, none of it added up to the collusion suggested in the Steele memos. And his probe looking for exactly that, special counsel Robert Mueller could not establish a criminal conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russian actors. We focused on whether the evidence was sufficient to charge any member of the campaign with taking part in a criminal conspiracy, and it was not. Though few of the underlying assertions proved true, Steele's big-picture takeaways about Russian meddling were similar to the eventual findings by the U.S. intelligence agencies that Russia did interfere in the 2016 presidential election with an aim to elect Donald Trump. The goals of this campaign were to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton, and harm her electability and potential presidency. Putin and the Russian government also developed a clear preference for President-elect Trump. Still declined to comment to CNN, but told ABC that while some of the specific details were off, several of the main pieces were not. Our work highlighted the threat that authoritarian regimes pose to democracy, and it still is a great threat to democracy and to our way of life. I think it's very sad what they've done with this fake dossier. While Donald Trump bitterly complained about the dossier, others were swept up in it. The dodgy dossier began with the false allegations about me. The FBI used references in the dossier to monitor Carter Page, a former Trump campaign advisor, as part of their application to get a wiretap on him in October 2016. U.S. officials tell CNN that last year the FBI used a dossier of allegations of Russian ties to Donald Trump's campaign as part of the justification to get approval to secretly monitor Trump associate Carter Page. As part of his inspector general review, Michael Horowitz determined the FBI couldn't confirm any serious claims from the dossier about Page. Just last year, the DOJ declared two of the FISA warrants against him to be invalid. I think the activities we found here don't vindicate anybody who touched this. And one of the dossier's most notorious unproven claims, a potential smoking gun for collusion, allegations of a secret trip to Prague by Trump's then-personal attorney, Michael Cohen, were not true, according to the inspector general. Have you ever been to Prague? I've never been to Prague. Never have. I've never been to the Czech Republic. Speaking with ABC, still remarkably still stands behind it. Since he's gone to prison, since he's turned on President Trump, he's told every single story. Why wouldn't he admit to this? Because I think it's so incriminating and demeaning. 
And the other reason is he might be scared of the consequences. The FBI had prior trust in Steele's reputation from working with him in a high-profile corruption case. It was raw intelligence, so a series of reports from a credible person with a reliable track record and a known experienced and sourced network in Russia. And so it was something to be taken seriously. But his work on the dossier did not hold up to official scrutiny. FBI intelligence analysts worked to verify all of the dossier's allegations, creating a spreadsheet identifying each statement that appeared in the Steele election reports in order to have a record of what the FBI learned. We should be clear that CNN has not confirmed the content of the calls. In February 2017, CNN reported that investigators were able to confirm the time, place and people involved in some of the conversations between foreign nationals. Two years later, the IG review found certain allegations were inaccurate or inconsistent with what the FBI investigation gathered, and the bits that were corroborated were based largely on publicly available information like titles, dates, and locations. Despite Trump and his allies claiming otherwise, the inspector general's main conclusion was that even though the FBI misused the dossier to renew FISA warrants against Carter Page, it was justified in its investigation of the Trump campaign. And concluded the dossier had nothing to do with the FBI's investigation. We found that Crossfire Hurricane was open for an authorized investigative purpose and with sufficient factual predication. Once special counsel Robert Mueller took over, the dossier was essentially ignored in the final report. Did Russians really tell that to Christopher Steele, or did he just make it all up and was he lying to the FBI? Uh, let me back up a second if I could and say, as I uh, said earlier, uh, with regard to the Steele, uh, that, uh, that's beyond my purview. Steele and his company Orbis Business Intelligence declined CNN's repeated request for an interview. And now I want to bring in CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. So all of this raises the question, Evan, what is Durham trying to show with these indictments? Well, what, what you see in the, the, the two recent indictments that, that Durham has brought uh, is he's sketching out this idea of a broader conspiracy that uh, the former president, President Trump, as he complained for, long, for, for, for years that he was essentially the victim of a smear that was carried out uh, by everyone from Clinton campaign, operatives, people in the Democratic Party, uh, this law firm Perkins Coie that works for Democrats trying to get the FBI to investigate Donald Trump and his campaign and leaking that information to the media. Now, this is uh, this is the, the world of, uh, of, of opposition research, right? That's the way it works here in Washington. And very often, this is the way stories get planted. It's not necessarily illegal. Uh, in this case, Durham says that there were crimes committed. And, and so now he has uh, brought charges against a former Clinton uh, campaign lawyer who worked for Perkins Coie uh, to try to prove some of these points. Durham is not done. Where is he going with this? Well, we don't know whether he's got additional charges. He certainly has some more subpoenas out there uh, against some additional folks. Uh, but one of the things that we learned early on, I mean, this is in uh, December of 2019, when uh, the Inspector General Horowitz came out with his findings of, of wrongdoing by the FBI. Uh, one of the things that, that Horowitz found that was key, he said that the FBI in investigation was properly predicated, meaning that they had reason to investigate the Trump campaign. 
in a very unusual move at the time, Durham put out a statement saying that he disagreed with that conclusion. So we know that from the beginning, Durham has had his doubts about whether there, was, there should have been ever uh, a, a, a Trump-Russia investigation. Of course, we know that the FBI opened this and had, had other reasons for investigating uh, the former president and his campaign. All right, Evan Press, thanks so much. Well, she alerted the world about COVID before it became a pandemic, and for that, China made her pay. Why she's not only behind bars, but is now struggling to stay alive. Up next. In our world lead, the Chinese citizen journalist who documented Wuhan under lockdown in early 2020 has been awarded the prize for courage at the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Awards. A bittersweet moment as she remains jailed and on a hunger strike for telling the truth. And now as CNN's David Culver reports, her family is waiting to hear if Chinese officials will release her for medical reasons. Traveling alone to the original epicenter in the height of China's COVID-19 outbreak last year, she documented the plight of Wuhan residents under a brutal lockdown. For that, 38-year-old Zhang Zhan has been languishing behind bars for 18 months. Now on a hunger strike and on the brink of death, her family and lawyer filing a petition for medical parole in the hope of saving her life. In early February 2020, Zhang, a lawyer turned activist, highlighted harsh realities on the ground. She posted more than 100 clips on YouTube, showing hospitals flooded with desperate patients and shops empty. Maybe I have a rebellious soul. Why couldn't I film that? I was just documenting the truth. Why can't I show the truth? In May of last year, authorities from Shanghai detained Zhang, then putting her on trial for picking quarrels and provoking trouble, a charge often used to silence government critics. According to the verdict seen by CNN, officials accused Zhang of recklessly fabricating and spreading content that distorted the coronavirus control measures in Wuhan and for seriously disturbing the public order. Last December, a court sentenced her to four years in prison. Family members say Zhang went on a hunger strike soon after her arrest. Her condition in jail rapidly deteriorating. Authorities even forced to put in a feeding tube. The five foot ten journalist now weighing less than 88 pounds, a skeleton of her former self. On Twitter, her brother posted, she may not survive the coming cold winter. Zhang, not the only one targeted for trying to expose the realities in Wuhan. Chen Choshi, another lawyer who posted videos critical of the authorities' early mishandlings, disappeared for more than a year, only recently resurfacing in public. Chen Mei and Tsai Wei jailed for 15 months after they archived news reports of the Wuhan outbreak that had been censored. Others, like Fang Bin, who uploaded the video of body bags in a Wuhan hospital, have simply vanished from public view. Also silenced, numerous whistleblowers. The most famous, Dr. Li Wenliang. Police had reprimanded him for spreading rumors when he first tried to tell friends and colleagues about the then-mystery illness. His eventual death from COVID made him a martyr in China, with the government begrudgingly embracing him as a hero. To counter all the critical voices, the propaganda czars later even deployed more than 300 state media journalists to Wuhan, pulling out all the stops to reclaim the narrative. An effort that's continued to this day, as state media breathlessly cover other countries' COVID debacles and conspiracy theories on the virus' origins, trying to sow doubt and deflect blame. As for Zhang Zhan, she's never wavered in believing her own innocence, 
with her lawyer telling CNN, She told me that she thinks her arrest, prosecution, trial and detention were unlawful. And only by going on a hunger strike did she feel she could express her frustrations. A desperate call for attention on China's growing intolerance for unfiltered information. We did reach out to Zhang's family to see if they wanted to comment on record. They declined our request for an interview. They say they don't want to anger the government any further so as to potentially worsen the situation. Pamela? David Culver, thank you. And on Sunday, join Fareed Zakaria for an in-depth look at China's leader Xi Jinping, China's iron fist, Xi Jinping, and the stakes for America air Sunday night at 9. Well, he had the support of celebrities like Kim Kardashian, and now, hours before he was set to be executed, Julius Jones has been granted clemency. That story, next. International lead Oklahoma's Republican Governor Kevin Stitt spared the life of high-profile inmate Julius Jones just hours before he was scheduled to be executed. The governor said Jones's sentence will be commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Jones was on death row for nearly 20 years in connection to the 1999 murder of Paul Howell. He and some high-profile names such as Kim Kardashian West and Cleveland Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield have maintained that he was wrongly convicted. Jones' attorney says that they are, quote, grateful that the governor has prevented an irreparable mistake. Also, in our national league, two men convicted in the 1965 assassination of Malcolm X are exonerated today after nearly half a century and a recent two-year investigation by the Manhattan DA. For decades, Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam insisted they were innocent. And the man who confessed to killing the civil rights icon even told authorities at the time Aziz and Islam were not involved. Still, all three men were sentenced to life in prison. The New York DA's office re-examined the case after a Netflix documentary series called Who Killed Malcolm X began to raise more questions than answers. And what investigators found was that both the FBI and NYPD withheld information that could have cleared the two men during their trial. Khalil Islam died in 2009. Mohammed Aziz is now 83 years old. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. Today, you can follow me on Twitter at PamelaBrownCNN or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.